Hello, this is Ashley Naylor from the rock band Even and other assorted goodies, and you are on Fox on the Wire. You're listening to Fox on the Wire podcast. All right. You ready? I'm ready, mate. Let's go. Okay. Ash Naylor, welcome to Fox on the Wire. Thanks for having me, mate. It's good to be here. Absolutely stoked to uh, get you on the show. Oh, thanks for inviting me. It's nice to finally make it. And uh, welcome to the new new podcasting room I've set up here, slash music room. Mate, it's a dream. Uh, when do I move in is what I say. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime you like. <laughs> it's um, still a work in progress, but uh, I think we're getting there and hopefully it's going to inspire some good conversations Absolutely, as mate. we do more. So, um, yeah, how have you been? Been good, thanks. Yeah, good. just... Um, Easing into, you know, work life, whatever that definition yep. entails. Yeah. Yep. So last uh, October you released a solo album called Soundtracks Volume 1. Will there be a volume 2? There will. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks for noticing. Yeah, I, I snuck it out in September, October last year, I think on Hendrix's anniversary. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, there will be. I just um, had to sort of uh, scratch that itch. Um, just get a whole bunch of stuff um, out into the open because it's been sitting at home for some of it for a couple of years and other things were, were fresh uh, from last year during the enforced layoff. Yeah. So um, the songs you had on this album, were they sort of ones that you had almost lying around that you'd sort of written sort of over the years that you sort of never got around to? Recording, yeah, or are they all brand new songs that you wrote last year? No, it's probably 70 30, 70 percent new, 30 percent old, yeah. Um, and then as you can probably relate to being a musician and a songwriter, mm. sometimes some songs don't require vocals or melodies mm. over the top. They, I find some pieces of music are just fine the way they are, yeah. Is that easy for you to make that decision, or does it sort of speak for itself as you're recording it or writing it yes yeah, like i don't need lyrics on yeah this. sometimes i think yeah the more i play um, i'm not sure if you can relate to this but the more i play the more satisfaction i get out of just creating a piece of music mm. um i don't know if you have this issue but when i put vocals on things sometimes i feel like i'm not diluting the diluting the process sometimes you're enhancing a piece of music with lyrics and melodies yeah. but sometimes i feel like it's it's it distracts me sometimes as a listener from a, a particular piece of music. So um, the pure indulgence of doing an instrumental record, um, you know, it was just so liberating just having a bunch of songs that essentially cost nothing to record and putting them out into the open uh, for not any major sort of, you know, narcissistic kind of motive to to have praise heaped upon me or anything. It was more like, yeah. you know, you have music, you want to get it out. And I think the nature of the songs, I felt like they were worthy of um, being aired. I mean, because what, what makes something worthy, you know? Mm. I think once you, you record something you like, just put it out. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's a lot of pieces of music that you might write um, even if it's not a full song, that never actually make it to the recording process. You know, they sort yeah. of just 
end up on a voice recording on your phone or um, in a notebook and never sort of go any further than that, I guess. That's right. And so, one, of, one of the songs on that soundtracks is a voice, as a uh, song called in, Indian Bells. It's an acoustic riff I did on the, on the phone. Oh. And, and probably like yourself, I got a, I got a, a library full of tunes on the yeah. phone, and I actually wrote them down uh, a few months ago. I got a pen out, yeah. <laughs> pen and paper, and went through all my all my phone ideas. I was like, hang on a sec, there's thirty five, you know, half baked ideas here. Mm. Um, so some of them do have an, uh, have another life, that, you know. And yeah, I, I um, you know, I, I I guess I treat the phone like you used to treat a dictaphone or a Walkman back in the day, you know. Just yeah, but. Sometimes I don't have the, the time or energy to, to review things and mm. pick through them. Yeah. Some stage. Yeah. Um, but you got to document it somewhere. I'm easily forgetful, you know, even if it's the next morning and I'm like, oh, what did I write last night? I'll forget. So I've got to, I've got to record it, otherwise I'll forget. Well, I think Keith had the same thing with satisfaction. Didn't yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a bedside table. He had a tape recorder on the okay. bedside table. Yeah, yeah. And that's the kind of riff you want to get down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lucky he did that. Yeah, I think we're all we're all benefiting from that. <laughs> but um, like, there's a couple of ways of looking at it. If a song's worthy enough, you'll remember it. I think the Beatles had that philosophy that if it was good, John and Paul would remember the song the next day. You know, okay. if, if they thought it was worthy of remembering. Um. Yeah, look, it's it's almost like a clearing of the decks as well. Like having all this mm. stuff that I've amassed all this material during, um, as I said before, that enforced layoff last year, it's put me into a different mode. I was back into recording mode and just writing tunes all the time, and I and I can write tunes till my head explodes. You know, yeah. writing songs is the hard part. Writing mm. tunes is easy for me. So, do you sort of not struggle more, but like find it a bit harder to write lyrics than music? I do. It takes yeah. longer for me, and yeah. um, at the moment, I'm trying to be a bit more, a bit freer with myself about it, and not um, force myself to write lyrics. Yeah. I mean, the last album I even did. I had some songs I'd written the lyrics for three times before I settled on mm. a set of lyrics that were acceptable to me. Yeah, I think the longer you go along, uh, you know, the more years you're writing songs, the harder it is to settle on lyrics that you write. I'm finding that now. Yeah. Um, I'm a bit more aware of that they're going to end up on a recording and people might actually be listening to what I'm sort of singing, so I'm a little bit more self-conscious yeah, these days. It's good to try and balance being self-conscious with also being free within yourself. Yeah. Because if you agonise, I think, too much over certain aspects of the process, it that might sound agonised, you know? <laughs> Yeah, if that's if that you know what I mean. Like um, lyric lyric writing is is difficult. I I don't have a high opinion of myself as a lyricist, but I like lyrics to fit within a, a piece of music. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily I don't necessarily feel like say with even I don't feel like the band's music is a launch pad for my lyrics and melodies. I feel like the lyrics and melodies are part of the this the whole picture. Mm. So I'm not I'm not motivated by writing lyrics and vocal melodies. I, I find it it's it's just a part of part of what I do when I'm making a song. But okay. I can relate to the, the idea of, you know, being, being not fussy but particular about how, mm. how you phrase something or what you're saying or how overt you want to be about something or how guarded you want to be about something, you know. Yeah, because, I mean, they are pretty revealing 
you know, writing lyrics is pretty revealing, but uh, yeah, I find it almost frustrating at times trying to uh, make yourself sort of feel okay with them. Yeah. You get sick of it. By the time you finish it, you're kind of almost sick of it and sick yeah. of the process of, so yes, yeah, I guess it's that fine line of trying to not force it, but um, somehow you still got to, you know, work your way through the process and be happy with the end result yeah. without being frustrated by it. And also I think in music, I'm not sure what your own expectations are of your own material, but my expectations of my own lyrics aren't unrealistic. Mm. I know, I think I have an idea of what I'm capable of, but, you know, I, I'm I'm not trying to beat someone else at their game, you know what I mean? Like, right. um, I'm just trying to refine my approach. And I think that's probably the the thing that I'm trying to do in this phase of, you know, songwriting is to just to, it's like distilling it down to what I think is good music. It, 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 I'm not trying to um, have some kind of pretentious um, aspiration of being a great lyricist or a great mm. storyteller, you know. I'll leave that to the experts. <laughs> yeah, you just do your own thing. Yeah, and I think I think everyone, yeah. if, they, if they just do their thing, Everything else kind of falls into place. Um, I think Ray Davies said, if you write with honesty, if you write sincerely and with honesty, the end product will be good. Yeah, and I think that will last longer, like uh, as in terms of a career, which is probably why you've had such a long and successful career is because you've done your own thing. You haven't tried to, you know, maybe... Uh, match someone else or keep up with someone else or trends or, or anything like that. You're just kind of doing your own thing. Yeah. I mean, um, it has its pitfalls as well, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I think that's the key. Like um, look at Anton Newcomb from the Brian Jonestown massacre. Like he, he is essentially an industry of one, you mm. know, or, or Kevin Parker from Tammy Parlour or um, PJ Harvey or someone someone who's got this idea of what they want to do and they do it and they're unflinching. They they mm. they don't bow to the industry. And I think that's, you know, I've had my moments in the past where I've been seduced by the industry and the expectations placed upon myself or the band that I'm in. Mm. At the time when we were creating a bit of a buzz in the late 90s, you, you get a little bit um, intoxicated by that. Yeah. And, and you sort of perhaps momentarily forget why you're making music. Mm. Um, whereas now at this at this point in time, I feel like the making of the music is its own reward. Yeah. yeah. But I've also been lucky to um, have played in some very well-established bands like Paul Kelly Band and Rock Wiz and the Stems and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. which has afforded me the um, the luxury of having a musical lifestyle mm. but also having time away to do my own stuff yeah yeah flipping between different projects and keeping everything fresh I yeah. Guess. yeah and and, and and learning by osmosis like i've learned a mm. lot playing in paul's band i've learned a lot about um an optimum environment for a band to make its best music you know to make its best music within mm. okay yeah so um 
Yeah, I'm 51 now, and I still feel as excited about making music as I did when I was 25. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I mean, you know, your audience has shrunk, but the passion is still there, you know? Um, I guess COVID, you know, the lockdown time aside, are you sort of busier than you have been in any other point in your career, like going between all these different projects? Yeah, prior to 2020, I was at a probably at a peak business. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe it might have just been instilled in me as a, as a kid to um, not be afraid of working. Yeah. Although it's a little bit of a conundrum because I don't always equate being a musician with working because mm. it's, it's a different kind of headspace, like compared to doing a job you don't like. The work, I guess the work element comes in with being prepared for each gig that you take on. You've got to make sure that you're mentally and physically prepared for mm. what the gig requires. Um, so short answer is, yeah, I think up until 2020 I was as busy as I've ever been, mm. but probably more mentally equipped now to deal with that busyness. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So going back to your uh, Soundtracks Volume 1 album, did you record that at home? Yeah, everything except for one track was recorded at home. The opening track was done at a friend's studio in London. Oh, right. Um, on a day off in 2014. Over there, I was over there for a week or so. Um, and we just went in one night and I did the whole Lenny Kravitz thing, just whacked down the drums, bass, guitar, and oh, yeah. pretended I was in Crosby, Stills, and Nash for a few minutes. <laughs> pretended I was Stephen Stills for five or six minutes. And then the rest of the stuff I did at home, um, very rudimentary recording. Like, I'm not hi-fi, I'm not a high-tech recording mm. engineer. Yeah. I, I just, if it's a clean signal, it doesn't distort, then I'm happy. Yeah. So everything on there, um, with the exclusion of a couple of drum loops, which were recorded um, years ago, actually, there's a couple of Matt Cotter drum loops, Matt from Even, there's a couple of drum yeah. loops I found off a session we did, I think, in 2011. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I, I sought Matt's approval before I... Of course. <laughs> yeah, I said, Matt, are you okay if I use this? Because, um, yeah, Matt, you know, Matt is... Such a great drummer. He's just, um, you know, eight bars of Matt Cotter is like <laughs> gold, you know? Yeah. So um, there's a song, the second track, um, I think it's Free the Air. That's a Matt, that's Matt on a drum loop. I, um, yeah, I was secretly hoping he would um, approve of me using it. Yeah. <laughs> and there's another song down the end, Festival Jam, which is just Matt. Um, Matt just playing to a track we did around the same period and I just changed, I just put a new guitar on there and some bass and, yeah, so, um, I'm oh, sorry, I've gone off the track, yeah. Oh, it was all recorded at home. Everything yeah. everything I did except the opening track was done at home. So the opening track was uh, Weeping Johnny? Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about the, uh, the wah sound you've got on that. Okay. Um, I guess it sounded... Very much like a Hendrix sort of wah sound. Yeah. But was did it, it change through the song? Like at the start of the song, I really picked up on it, but then I'm like, more I listen to it, I'm like, oh, it's a bit sort of Jimmy Page too, maybe. Or Well, those two are my yeah. beacons. Like Hendrix and Page for me when it comes to wah yeah. are the absolute apex of that yeah. style of music. And I... I, I used whatever was at my disposal. I'm sure it was a, I think it was a Jim Dunlop crybaby. Yeah. Um, 
don't think it was a Vox Wah. But, um, yeah, I guess getting doing instrumental stuff and doing... There you go. <laughs> <laughs> when I listen to it, I'm like, oh, should pull out the uh, old Jimi Hendrix Wah. I think I got this when I was like... Maybe 12 for like yeah. Christmas. Man, what a great present. I remember when I first tried a wire, it was like your, your world certainly goes, it suddenly goes from black and white into Technicolor. Yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, yeah, I, I don't think, apart from Hendrix and um, Jimmy Page, I, I, I don't think I've had any other major influences with regards to why I would ever pick up a wire pedal, but um, mm. those two guitar players pretty much. With a soundtrack of my teenagehood. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it was it was probably one of these guys, like a, a, a Dunlop or a Crybaby kind of. Yeah. But um I, I getting back to the instrumental thing, the, yeah. the the freedom that I I just love the freedom of making instrumental music. Mm. You know, like okay. I didn't feel like any I mean that could have turned into a song, but it's almost sometimes like a it's like you're shoehorning something that doesn't fit on occasions, you know, trying to squeeze these lyrics into a piece of music, it just doesn't, sometimes it just doesn't fly. And it probably gave you more freedom with the music that you didn't have to try and, you know, fit vocals around it or Absolutely. vice versa. Absolutely. Um, there was another track, uh, Handgun Blues, which is basically a seven and a half minute guitar solo. It is. With it no, is. no backing music or anything. No, well, yeah, that, that I was listening to... <laughs> So much Hendrix during um, that period of time. Uh, for me, listening to Hendrix during 2020 was like just having musical medicine. Mm. Like um, you might recall my 50th in, in March last year, 2020. Yep. All right, a mate of mine, Pat, gave me a box set of the Fillmore concerts, mm. 69-70, of Band of Gypsies. All right. So all five, I think it's five shows over three days or two days, five, three days. So all the shows that he did that weekend are now on a box set. Wow. So I had a, a pretty intense band of gypsies um, listening party with myself. Yeah. Um, and it really, it really um, came out in things like Handgun Blues because Handgun Blues, like you said, it's essentially a seven or eight minute guitar solo, but it, mm. It has form. To me, it has form. Not, you know, kind of a loose structure, mm. but it also tests the patience of anyone who, who might be listening to it because mm. it's the kind of thing you could have 30 seconds of it and you get the gist of it or eight minutes of and you you get the gist of it. But that's the beauty and freedom of making instrumental music. Um, isn't, isn't just no limits. Yeah. And and another influence for that one was um, Maggot Brain by Funkadelic. Oh, yeah. Which is an opening track on their album of the same title and Eddie Hazel essentially plays a, um, a guitar solo for the whole song. Yeah. So there's a light, there's a light rhythm holding it together and then Eddie Hazel's playing Hendrix style lead over this whole track. Um, and if anyone who, who tunes into your podcast is curious at all, I think for me, Eddie Hazel is kind of like the successor to Hendrix because mm. the early Funkadelic and Parliament records with him playing lead on it are just, Absolutely mind blowing. Okay. Yeah. I'll have so, to check that out. Yeah, it, he's um Yeah, the the guitar playing on Standing on the Verge of Getting It On by Funkadelic is is up there for me with some of the best electric guitar mm. ever recorded. Okay. Yeah. I'll check that out. And I'm a fussy old <laughs> fuss pot. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, is it crazy to you that Hendrix did so much um, and he was only 27 when he died? Yeah. Like, there's a few people like that, obviously, in the 27 Club and even uh, Tupac in the in the rap thing. He was, like, 25, I think. Yeah, it's insane, isn't it? And they just did so much up until that point that's still lasting through these generations. That, that just blows me away, I guess. It does blow me away. And yeah. In, in my 20s, I used to be very hung up on my... Um, my age, I used to sort of think, oh, I'm, this is, I'm too old, I can't, there's no way I could possibly write a good song, I'm 26 or 27, you know. Yeah. Like, and to think that Hendrix had done everything that he did mm. up until that point and, and, you know, who knows what could have come after. But, um, well, you know, on, on a similar note, look at Steve Marriott from Small Faces. He he left the Small Faces when he was 21. Mm. So he, he'd already <laughs> been in the Small Faces for, yeah. you know, uh, since... 1965, yeah. um, and by 1969, that's it. You know, I'm going to form another band with Peter Frampton. I'll yeah. form Humble Pie. Look, a bit like Paul Weller from Style Council. Like when he left Style Council, I think he was, oh, when he left the jam, when he split his band up at the peak of its success, he was like 23 or something. Right. Um, yeah, it does astound me that people like Jimi Hendrix can do what they do being so young, but, you know, you don't need me to tell anyone how much of an anomaly he is in, in every mm. aspect mm. and and just a once-in-a-generation musician. Yeah. And he still rates, you know, in all the guitar world, polls and top guitarists of all time, still number one. And, yeah. you know, that will probably never change. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, you know, you can't – how can you dispute it? I mean, yeah. it's not to everyone's taste. Yeah. But as a as a – a budding guitarist myself. Mm. Every time you pick up a guitar, you think, "How can I, how can I make it sound better?" Mm. And you know, Hendrix had the finesse, but he also had this wild, raw side, which um, is as much a part of his thing as his finesse and skill. Yeah, you know, like he's a very skilled guitarist. Yeah, but he he also had this sense of abandon, which um, you can't force that, <laughs> mm. you know. Did he make you want to play left-handed? <laughs> <laughs> no, he just made me want to play better. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I um, obviously grew up with Nirvana and there was a point there when I was sort of first starting to learn guitar, uh, you know, I'd sort of learnt the basics and, I'm like, I really wanted to play left-handed. So I tried that. I figured, you know, I've learned the technique on this side. Maybe I'll just, I can just switch it over and, yeah. <laughs> and do it. How'd but, you go? No, I'm not real good. Yeah. So I'm still a right-handed guitarist, but that's fine. Uh, no shame in that. But um, <laughs> yeah, Kurt, well, there you go. Like he, he, yeah. he's another brilliant guitar player for different reasons. Yeah, yeah. You know, like how could you think of a chord, chord progression like lithium or something? Like who thinks of that? Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. no one, he's another one. Once in a generation kind of artist, yeah. you know, and it's just it's pure art, really, isn't it? It's not just songwriting, and um, it's it's more art. Like what he could do uh, with the things that he was writing and the way he painted his lyrics and his performances. Not anyone can just do that. No, well, he, he's he's another anomaly, you know, mm. for a multitude of reasons, and. Mm. <sighs> You know, I, I was and am a massive Nirvana fan. Like, mm. you know, they just 
I saw, actually saw them uh, when they came out, and it's like, you know, it was just beautiful. Yeah. You know, like it was powerful and it was exciting and you could sense, you know, you, you can feel the change, you know, you can feel mm-hmm. the change in in everything, like mm-hmm. um, coming out of the 80s <laughs> into the 90s, you know, you know, it was a, I guess it was a, probably a gradual transition um, to a certain extent culturally, but Nirvana kind of, they fast-tracked this change. Okay, well, I think it gave people a lot of freedom. Right. Just to be themselves. Yeah. You know, you see a guy up there with Converse and a cardigan with a <laughs> Fender Mustang yep. screaming at the top of his lungs but making this beautiful racket. It, it mm. was very liberating. In a small or relatively small place? Uh, yeah, so I'm at the palace. Yeah. Palace. So what year was that? Was that 91? 92. Two. Yeah. So did you feel that um, sort of shift in music as it was happening, like from, well, I guess, to keep it simple, from the 80s sort of glam thing to the grunge sort of movement? Did you feel that as it was happening? Yeah. Because you lived yeah. right through it. Absolutely. So. I was had, had a bit of a concurrent um, experience there because the band that I was in in the 80s, The Swarm, was a very English-influenced band mm. and very influenced by The Smiths and The Cure and Susie and the Banshees and Joy Division. Yeah. So the glam rock thing, it was running parallel to what I was into and I was into The Stone Roses and when other mates of mine were into Mud Honey and that kind of mm. stuff, I was into the roses and they they sort of managed to transition through the late 80s, early 90s, relatively unscathed apart from the fact they split in 96 for the first time. Mm. But Nirvana just just changed. It's hard to sort of overstate the impact they had really. Not to take any credit away from them, obviously, because they're one of my favourite bands, but did they get too much credit for for that whole change? Like, obviously, it wasn't just them. No, the, yeah, the, you're right. There or, was a bunch of bands. You yeah, know, like, or is it more that other bands maybe don't get enough credit, like Soundgarden and Alice in Chains? And... Well, I think those bands you mentioned got they got recognition for, for, for the, their artistry, mm. you know, um, but I think given that Nirvana was such a freakish anomaly, mm. um, I, I don't think I don't think um, in any of the attention or credit Nirvana got was um, mm. I don't I don't think it was uh, over the top. I think it was justified, you know. Because yeah. I mean, from a songwriting perspective, no one before or since has written songs like Kurt Cobain. I mean, he openly confessed to being a massive Pixies fan, which is pretty obvious in some ways, but you could go so far as to say that Frank Black, no one could write songs like that guy. Mm. Um, Not to diminish the songwriting of, you know, Lane Staley and um, Chris Cornell and and, and their bandmates, you Mm. know, um, Jerry Cantrell and those guys who are really very talented songwriters in their own right, but I think there was just something so different about Nirvana. Mm. Although they're a heavy rock band, they they were quite different. Yeah, you know they they did they did stick out from that that mob. So it really was that sort of special at that, or they were that special at that time. You really noticed it. Yeah, because yeah. they were they were more than just a. They weren't even a grunge band, you know that. Yeah. That 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 tag doesn't even apply to them. They're just mm. a great. To me, they're just like a classic rock band. With so many different elements, like that, you know, they had like a punk element, a, a kind of hard rock element, but also a, 
a pop element as well. Oh, big time, yeah. You know, yeah. and you put all those together in, in, yeah. in that sort of magical mix of what they had. And um, the thing is, it's all, it's like talking about the Beatles. It's It's been, you know, it's been overstated and talked about so much. But mm-hmm. having seen them live and, and buying their records when they came out, it was, yeah. it was exciting. Yeah. Yeah, I always like to talk to people who lived through it, through it and noticed it at the time because I sort of... I was only about uh, eight or nine, sort of in the early nineties, so I wasn't into it at the time. It yeah. was more sort of just after Kurt died. I think that I I got into it. So I was looking back and I was reading back, and it was always you know. Um, but I always like to talk to people who actually lived through it and noticed it at the time. Yeah, to get like a proper perspective. So well, it, it's interesting. I um. It's like it reset me because I, I grew up on uh, 70s rock, the like Kiss and Sweet, Skyhooks and ABBA and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Then I got into my whole 80s trip. But the Nirvana thing kind of was like a reset. Mm. And I went, I bought my first Marshall, I think, in 93 mm. from Troy Music down in Ringwood or something. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, it's okay to play rock and roll again. You know what I mean? And you and I was a band that had that same um, same impact on me as, yeah. a, as a young person into rock and roll. Yeah. You know? Marshall stack. It's okay to have a Marshall stack, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, Nirvana definitely got me going, and Silverchair because that was around the time Silverchair was getting started. That's when I started learning guitar. So it's probably those two bands for me. Yeah, Guns and Roses on a different sort of level with you know Slash and his yeah guitar uh, skills. So um, um, yeah, just and they're still having impacts, you know, all these years later. Well. That's that's the beauty of, of of great music. It's it's you know it's eternal, mm. um, and each of those acts you've mentioned have all made something in their collect in their collection of works that that, that will be considered timeless. You know, yeah. Um, it's it's that's the quest is to make music that's that's timeless. You know, mm. whatever whatever it is you're making. You know, but getting back to the Nirvana thing, yeah, it was it was. I think it turned us all into grunge bands for a little while. Like um, mm. when our band first started, we were we had a bit more of a heavier sound, and I was using a Gibson. And um, I think it just got it it, it made it a bit um, easier if you weren't a virtuoso musician. It made it more acceptable for you to just do what you do. Yeah, and that's not to say that other bands didn't give you license to do that. Other bands in the eighties, like Husker Du and mm. Fugazi and Dead Kennedys. Other bands had paved the way, and Jane's Addiction, those kind of bands had paved the way for individualism within within an alternative music scene that sort of became mainstream. Yeah. Let's also re- remember that at that point in time, there was a real indie major kind of um, contrast, mm. you know, like um, not, not many bands, I think, prior to Husker Du and Jane's Addiction were signing to Warners, you know, and then when... When um, Nirvana signed to Geffen, it was like, mm. okay, they're going into the big wide mm. world, you know, because they were on Sub Pop. And yeah. it's like um, Sub Pop had this kind of um, occultish sort of cottage industry thing and then and Geffen kind of took it with them and took it to the world. Uh-huh. But the power of Nirvana's music, you could, you could, all, you could sort of um, – Say that it was it was almost inevitable that mm. being so good that the world needed to hear it. But it was such a big jump from Bleach in '89 
to Nevermind in 91, wasn't it? Yeah. Two very different. Yeah. Like that was almost sort of metal in, you know, had a metal undertone, bleach. And yeah. Then, uh, I mean, you could hear the songwriting skills in it still, but, and then you hear Nevermind. And that was only like two years, you know, and then just a massive, massive jump, I guess. And I, Yeah. And also the, just the different hoops bands jump through mm. when they get signed. I mean, I think I read a quote from Kurt saying um, that the album sounded like Motley Crue or something when he first heard Nevermind. It was so mm. slick, you know, but, you know, we love it. We, as music fans, we love those records yeah. for what they are. We don't think of what they could have been. Yeah. Only the artist has that luxury of thinking, well, it's not as raw or as, not as dirty as I would have liked, and therefore they get Steve Albini to make the next record. So Yeah, which was killer. Yeah. Oh. But you know, you needed a band. Uh, sorry, uh, an album like Nevermind, which is pretty slick, to then appreciate an album like In Utero. I yeah, think. and when we say slick, I guess we say it within the context of, of rock music. Like the the production on Nevermind is just jaw dropping. Yeah, you know, like the the Butch Vig production, but the Andy Wallace mix. Yeah, it's just unparalleled. Mm. You know. Well, they said, you know, one of the many documentaries that's sort of floating around that. I think Butch Fig did a mix of Teen Spirit and if they'd have released that, it wouldn't have been, you know, as popular as it was with the uh, Andy Wallace mix. Yeah. But it wasn't a huge, well, maybe I should go back and listen before I comment, but yeah, I, I don't think it was a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, it's all it's all uh, speculative. Yeah. It's like when um, Paul remixed the, um, the Let It Beat, sessions for the naked let it be naked the beatles thing sort of rewriting history you know like you you know you just sometimes you just t- accept a record at face value and yeah i don't sometimes i don't often dig too deep and think of what ifs like mm. if nirvana had been mixed by someone yeah you know, if nevermind had been mixed by someone else or um it you know it just it's just one of those things it's it's uh it's just a great moment in time, you know. Yeah. It's, it was just, just a once-in-a-lifetime record, you know. And it kind of, would you say it sort of set the rest of the 90s in motion for the, the music scene, basically? Well, it did to a great extent. It, it, yeah. it, um, well, it set a precedent, I guess, and a lot of bands felt they had to match it sonically. And I'm, I'm not saying that our band were exempt from it as well. We started in 94 and we were... Me having come out of the sort of the, the the cleaner pop world of the Smiths and REM and that more jangly kind of stuff, I think some of the early even stuff um, paid tribute to that sound in a different in a, in 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 a, a small way, you know. Like um, we're essentially like a pop rock band. Yeah. Um, but I think it's almost like when the when the dust settles, the bands that survived the nineties sort of turn into the bands that they probably were always going to turn into, mm-hmm. you know, when the, when the distortion sort of toned down a bit. Yeah. <laughs> and then you had the uh, new metal towards the end of the 90s and 2000s. That was another sort of change. Yeah. And, and, you know, that that was a scene that I couldn't couldn't embrace because yeah. I, was, I was heading down a different musical path. You know, I was heading down the more sort of beat less kinksy kind of almost pastoral kind of, um, I couldn't really relate to new metal. I could understand mm. its attraction and the power of it, but um, 
Uh, looking back on new metal, I can't really think of a song from that era that I would think is a great sort of um, classic song. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's purely subjective. Like it's 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 not my cup of tea. But um, I felt like in the late nineties, our band were fighting against that kind of mm. um, genre. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about um, even. Iconic Melbourne-based rock trio who just celebrated your 27th anniversary. How does that feel? 27 oh, years man, as a band with the same three guys. I know it, it's quite an achievement. I'm trying to think of other bands that have had the same lineup since day one, and I can't think of a lot. Um, Aerosmith, Aerosmith, U2. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's there's not. Uh, there's not a lot of bands that come to mind. I'm sure there's quite a few out there. Um, yeah. Green Day? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Living End? Had a different drummer. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, had drummer change, yeah. Right. We've only had a lineup additions. We've never had a lineup um, sort of overhaul, mm. so to speak. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, I digress, as you know, <laughs> from part one. <laughs> so you played your first show together um, on March 4th, 1994. Um, and you know, you've picked up generations of fans along the way since then and, um, obviously built a very loyal fan base. Um, so that first show was at the Empress of India Hotel, uh, in Fitzroy North with Ammonia and Hurdy Gurdy. Um, and you recently posted the set list that you used for that night. Yeah. Um, is there any songs from that set list that you still, you know, has a have a as a permanent song on today's set list? Uh, mm, not permanent, and part of the reason is um, this is a fairly lame reason is that some of the early songs had um, different guitar tunings. Oh yeah. So, depending on how prepared I am for a show, I'll I'll write I won't write a set list full of different tunings to keep it easier for myself. Uh, during guitar change, that, that's what a stupid reason to not play songs anymore. No, but, makes, um, sense. <laughs> makes sense. They can be played in standard tuning, just some of them don't resonate the same way. But yeah. occasionally we'll play 24 Hour Cynic or Superglue, which I think is on that first set list from memory, um, which were on our first EP in 95. Mm. Um, but like I was talking to you about last time, sometimes I, I might have been. Um, a bit self-conscious in the past about playing older material in that sort of grungy area where we sort of maybe trying a bit too hard to be something we weren't. But I think um, now having been around long enough to have that, that distance from that period, I don't feel so sort of embarrassed or mm. shy about playing that old stuff anymore. Cause it's part of um, it's, it's part of the band's, um, Body of work, for want of a better word. Yeah, yeah. which is consisted of uh, about seven albums, a couple of EPs and a few compilations. What does it feel like to have such a massive body of work behind you? And obviously you're still creating a lot going forward, but what's it like to have that in the background in your um, in your library of music? Well, it's, it's exciting um, in many aspects, because as a as a kid or as a teenager, you kind of fantasize about releasing a a record or a CD, and and you can you can share that joy of having mm. your music documented on a on a on a CD or a cassette or a 
a record, you um, it's a bit surreal when you're doing it yourself. And and I'm not sure about yourself, but I often feel that everything I do falls short of my heroes. Yeah, and I guess that's the motivation for for continuing to make music. You try and perfect what you do, or not not perfect because that's impossible. But you try and refine what you do. Mm. Um, to give you a more condensed answer, I feel proud that our band was um, deemed worthy to be signed back in the early or mid nineties um, to Rubber Records. We did three albums with Rubber. Yeah, before we went independent um, in about two thousand and three. Mm. Yes, I feel it feels nice to have have your own records in in your collection. But um, that said, I don't often derive much pleasure listening to my own music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think once you go through the phase of writing it, recording it, and probably playing it live a bunch of times, there's probably little desire to go back and chuck on a CD and see what it sounds like. But yeah, I think the joy comes from making it and performing it. I, yeah. I don't get I don't get maximum joy hearing it back. But that said. The more time I've spent recording, I get pleasure from hearing it if it's a true indication of what I'm trying to to put across. Like, mm. um, you know, even the real mixed bag, it's it's a, you know, I like the Sex Pistols and Pink Floyd yeah. <laughs> and ABBA and Kiss and R.E.M. and the Stone Roses and Funkadelic. Mm. So it sounds nothing like any of those bands, but... Um, if I like it, and hopefully if Matt and Wally like the songs that I'm putting forward, then that's like I said in earlier. You know, the other chat we had, it's kind of its own reward. Yeah, yeah, and I guess all those inspirations you draw from somehow funnel out into an even song or a solo song of yours. Yeah, all yeah. The, all the influences spill out in some way. So in 2018, you guys released. Uh, Saturn Returns, um, which is probably one of my favourite cover arts I've seen in a little while. Uh, and the vinyl was also available in hot pink, apparently. Is it still? There could be a few kicking around. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm i not sure if the coloured vinyl thing is kind of one off now. I think it might be. <laughs> <laughs> I think we might have cooked our goose in that world. So, um <laughs> Maybe the next one will just be, you know, 180 grand black vinyl. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Back to basics. Yeah, there, there, there's probably a few kicking around. We, yeah. I guess it had been seven years since we'd made a record, so we thought let's just, yeah. let's just have fun with it. And like I said to you on our previous discussion, um, with the cover I just wanted to be bold and just, you know, put ourselves out there, even though we're older now. But mm-hmm. it's the same three people making the music and um, I don't – put my face on record covers very often. I did it once in 98 with Even and once in 2014 with Paul Kelly on the Merry Souls album. And oh, yeah. I look like I just robbed a bank. I look, <laughs> I look like I've just called out of a dumpster with a mustard suit on, I tell you. And my, my son and daughter, they tease me every time they see that photo. Um, when Paul sent us the photos for approval, I said, I'm I don't, not sure about this photo. I, I, it, and this is 2014. And I, I thought, man, it's been, you know, so long since I've been on an album cover, I at least want to be happy with the photo. Yeah. <laughs> Paul goes, oh, no, was, Fish and I really like it. Fish was the guy doing the artwork. I think his name was Fish. You yeah. know, it was one of those kooky industry nicknames. Anyway, <laughs> uh, and I just fired back the email saying, 
It's your album, man. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, no, you know, in a nice way, it's like, okay, I can't help the way I look. I, I look like I've just called out of a um, out of a, a bin at the back of a supermarket. <laughs> but um, getting back to the even thing, yeah, it's like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll spruce myself up yep. to the best of my ability. <laughs> and if I may digress um, briefly, the day we got that photo taken yeah. um was the same day that i recorded all the guitar tracks for the last track on the record return oh. to stardust okay so we got the photo shoot done in the studio about five or six in the afternoon um jay hind who took the photo he packed up all his gear his tripods and his umbrellas and all that stuff and matt and wally and jay all exited the building and i did a jimmy page and sort of you know shoot everyone away and <laughs> let me get busy so yeah, i yeah. did all the read all the guitars for return to stardust the last track on the record so can I digress again? Sure. Okay. That morning, <laughs> um, I was in the car driving to get some supplies or some groceries or something, and I had a baseball cap on, and the wind blew in in the car, and the hat flicked off, and I went to grab the hat, and I got my finger caught in the oh. you know, thing of the car where the, win- the window goes in. You know, yeah. The recess where the window... Yeah. Normally go. I got my finger caught in that on the way through to grab oh. my hat. And I'm driving, and I look at my finger, and um, I realised that I'd – well, I'm no, I'm no doctor, but I think I dislocated it. Yeah. And it was a finger that I'd had previously injured as a kid. So I did this – all that business. Oh. And I'm recording – I was recording that night, okay? So dislocated finger, photo shoot, <laughs> redid all the guitars for one of the tracks – and the same day. Mm. So I look back on that album cover very fondly for different reasons. Mm. What fin- uh, What hand was the finger? Thankfully it was on the strumming hand. Right, okay, yeah. So on the night of doing all these guitar parts, I think I had a bit of elastoplast yeah. on these guys. Yeah, I did actually, and I've got the picking hand and I'm you know, pretending for nine minutes that I'm David Gilmore. Yeah. Playing essentially a guitar solo through the whole song. Um, and Timmy... Johnson, who tracked that song, was in the control room. I'm in the recording room with two AC30s, a rat pedal, a strat, a delay pedal, and I'm having the best day of my life. Mm. You know? Nice setup. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the day ended with me playing guitar. Yeah. Um, it started with me dislocating my finger. <sighs> Man, those fingers are a precious thing, aren't they? <laughs> well, as you know yourself, oh. as a guitarist, you they are... Um, to be looked after. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I sort of fractured mine back when I was like 20. And um, that's still, that's like my f- forefinger of my right picking hand. Yeah. And the, the longer I play, um, it sort of gets a bit weaker. Yeah. So I've sort of had to adjust the way I hold my pick. But I kind of worry for years ahead that it's going to really sort of stifle me. But um, Well, you've got to... No, I'm not, not, it's not for me to say what you've got to do, but what you might do is develop some kind of exercise for this guy. Mm. Um, I sound like a sports scientist now. Well, it's kind of... Or you could just gaffer tape the picture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just think of Tony, Tony Iommi. He managed to play all that amazing yeah. guitar with caps, you know, plastic Mm. Caps on his fingers. I mean, that's just insane. What did he? He chopped off the basically the tips of his fingers, didn't he? I believe or so. Something. 
Yeah, I, I don't quote me on this. Yeah, I, I think it might have been a workplace injury. Yeah. Um, and the last time I read an article about it, he said he still carries them around in a little tin. He carries <laughs> the things around. In, in wow. But um, anyway, long story short, we must look after the digits, mate. Mm, yeah. I mean, you look at someone like Mick Mars from Motley Crue, his whole body is basically seized up on him because of his bone disease. I can't remember what it's called, but somehow his fingers still manage well, to work and he can play his guitar. Yeah, he's, he's like just incredible. Because it um, could have been the other way around, you know. Yeah. Could have been the hands going first. Yeah, yeah. So um, is there a new album in the works for Even? A follow-up to Saturn Returns? There is, yeah. There is. It's in the works and it's been a very piecemeal process, if that's the right word. Okay. Piecemeal. What does that mean? <laughs> well, I think it's like sort of um, bit by bit, you know? Right, yeah. Because um, of last year's interrupted flow, um, mm. the band could only get together very briefly. And when I say the band, at that point in time, it was just myself and Matthew because... Um, the way we work or tend to work most efficiently these days is if um, Matt and I record a track together and while he does the Paul McCartney thing, he'll come in later and put his bass on at the yeah. end yeah. and then he, he can hear the song and hear where it's going and mm. put what he deems an inventive and worthy bass line over a pre-existing track. Sometimes we track live, we a few of the songs on... Saturn Returns, we tracked live as a band at the trio, and mm-hmm. then I'd redo vocals, and Wally might fix up a bass thing or overdub more guitars. Right. But this time around, being be, the year being what it was, it was constructed from disparate. Um, some of the songs were from disparate recording sessions, and I've um, shaped songs mm-hmm. um, based on what I had at my disposal. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Maybe it's just Matt and I playing a rhythm track, then I'll put a vocal on while they'll come over when it was safe to do so and put some bass down. Right. So tomorrow he comes down and I've got three more tracks to do with bass. Okay. And then we do his BVs and then we're done. Cool. Yeah. So have we got a, a release sort of rough date in mind? Uh, I've got a rough date in mind, but I'm not going to say because okay. it might not be met. Right. <laughs> but put, let me put it to you this way. I reckon it'll be out by winter time. Okay. Yeah. I'm, cool. I'm not trying to be cagey to be sort of pretentious and stupid, but it's because the industry being what it is, yeah. as you know, yeah. you can't really predict. But I think I think, I think, sometime in the middle of winter it'll come out. And is it sort of similar to Saturn Returns, like a bit of a follow-on from that, or is it going to be quite a bit different? Yeah, it's, it's, it's in a similar – in some, some ways it's similar because um, – well, one of the main things on this record, the next Even record, there's going to be lots of, and I can't believe I'm about to say this, lots of guitar solos. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, for some people that's not what they want to hear, but for other, for me, it's what I want to do. Yeah. You know? Sounds good to me. Um, and that song, Return to Stardust, gave me the um, impetus to not be shy about doing long mm. guitar solos. Yeah. Because, or as Link calls them from the many's lead breaks. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, because I'm not a great singer. So in conjunction with that, I like to play guitar in a way that someone would play a trumpet or a sax or someone with a great voice would sing 
would ad lib with vocals. Mm. So I don't do much vocal ad libbing because I I know what my limits are. Mm. With gu- guitar ad libbing, I feel it. I've got more scope mm. as a, as a player. I think there's more scope for me to play, um, you know, kind of extended pieces of music on the guitar than is if, if I was ad-libbing on vocals, cause that would get very tiresome. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you guys have got some big shows coming up, um, supporting died pretty at the Croxton in April. Yeah. Which is big shows. It's exciting because, yeah. um, these, these shows were, um, Scheduled for April 2019. Yeah. <laughs> so two years in the making, these yeah. shows. And, you know, bless Ronnie, he, he was unwell and um, he's been recovering. And, you know, Ron and the band, they're just a magical, magical band. So to be able to play on the same bill um, is an absolute thrill for us. We, we played with Dope Pretty in 2016 at um, Max Watts. Mm. Um might have been still called the hi-fi by then, I can't remember. But, you know, you get to play your own music, but then you also get to sit side of stage and watch Die Pretty. So, you know, we're all in our 50s now, but we're still fans of music. We still love seeing great mm-hmm. bands, and we get to get to see them as well as play on the same show, which is it's, it's an honour, you know. Like, I don't mean to sound falsely sincere about that, but it is an absolute honour. Yeah, yeah. Is there any chance of you jumping on stage for a, a song, for an encore or something like that with them? That's a great question. Or can but, I not give that away? Well, the thing is, <laughs> I can't speak for Die Pretty, but I, um, they've never struck me as a kind of band that would invite extra kind of um, musicians on stage. But, I mean, if there was, if there was a, like a Velvet Underground or a Doors song that they were happy to do, and I'd definitely mm. come up. But, um, look, I'd probably, it's probably safe to say that no, I'll just be watching from the wings. Okay, which is cool. <laughs> yeah. You can just relax then. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so even played your, you do it every year, like your big annual Christmas show at the corner. Um, last year's, was that your first gig together sort of for most of the year because of lockdown yeah. and that sort of thing? It, it was. We did, a, we did a couple of streaming events. We did um, Delivered Live and we did the Cherry Bar. Uh, and they were both in the earlier part of 2020. One was in April and one was a bit later. But that felt great to play. And at that point of the year, I hadn't been listening to much loud music. So to to be on a stage playing loud music again was pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, but then coming out to play The Corner in December was pretty freaky, but in a good way. Like we hadn't played a pub show for over a year. mm and, you know, the venue had reformatted everything based on the restrictions. So it was nice to play the corner because um, depending on how popular you are at the time, sometimes the corner's a hard room to fill. So yeah, <laughs> on, the, on the upside, we managed to get nice turnouts for each of the four shows. Um, so we did two shows over two days with a day in between. So we had a Monday and Wednesday and we had a day off on the Tuesday. And I really dug it. I'm not sure if it suited all the band members playing two shows in one day because I think the physical requirements yeah. are different for each member, but um, I loved it, mate. I was, um, mm. yeah, it was really good. It was great to play there again. What was it like playing with the band again? Like were you guys a bit rusty playing together or after all these years it sort of just glued yeah. just like that? <laughs> Halfway between that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Like we had, a, yeah. we had a, a couple of rehearsals leading yeah. into it because um, we, were, we were a little bit um, unrehearsed, but our music is not, 
overly refined. I don't think we we're not such a slick band that we need to be super polished. I mm. mean, if we can sort of remember the songs, that's great. But we did we did had a couple of practice sessions and. I, I think by the fourth show, we were, we were a well-oiled machine. You know, I was joking with myself that it felt like being on tour. Yeah. You know, playing four shows in succession is, is a little bit unprecedented for us at the moment. Okay. We haven't toured for a long time. Yeah, the two two shows in one day would be, like, by the second time you're playing, being just cruising. Yeah, to I a guess. point, yeah. Depending on, yeah, like you said, the physical toll that it takes. Yeah, but. which, you know, I, I could I could play till I'm, yeah. you know, till I'm crawled in the corner in a screaming heap you know I'm, I'm you know it doesn't bother me but um i think also you want to keep it fresh every show had to be marginally different so mm. we changed up the set list a bit but um yeah it was great great to play and the band is its own thing like you know it's it takes on a life of its own yeah. at some point in a gig it's a well-oiled machine by this point, I wouldn't say it's well oiled. <laughs> Pretty well oiled. Frequently oiled. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so with your your sound as a band, like there's definitely a, a pop sensibility. Yeah. Um, sort of reminiscent of the pop rock of the '60s and '70s, like the Birds and a few other bands. Um, what would some of the other influences? I guess of even be what sort of bands like the Stone Roses and stuff oh, like that. Yeah, there's a whole a whole bunch yeah. of bands that we all like. I think yeah. um, we when we started out, we were we were doing a couple of covers. We did a Kinks cover. We did a Go Go's cover. We we all the three of us actually like a lot of similar music. You know, like Beatles is a big one for us, and um, the Lars. The British band from Liverpool who put out a record in 1989, 1990. Um, the Lars, we all love the Lars, and the Smiths. We're all massive fans of the Smiths, which is it's a band that really polarizes some people. But for us, we're like all Smiths tragics. Yeah, um, we love Zeppelin and the Who and the Kinks. Who uh, do gurus like? Um, a lot of our gig going days in the eighties was out seeing bands like the Who do gurus and Midnight mm. Oil, and yeah. So we. I didn't even answer the question, did I? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. There's uh, quite a few different ones, as I sort of assumed there would yeah, be. Yeah, well, yeah. There, lots there, of different Yeah, songs. lots of 60s, 70s, you know, yeah. Stones. And I think we all like different periods from different artists. But I think the common ground, um, it's, it's uh, our common ground is pretty strong, you know. So I had a question from um, Rob Haller. He said he wanted to know when your love of the British pop sound sort of started wow that's a great question oh look it's got to be fox on the run by the sweet oh you know yeah great british rock band what a band i think it all filtered down from there like the sweet kiss who in uh, within the the members of that group were all anglophiles you know they loved bad company and free and the beatles so all the Kiss guys were big fans of British rock. Yeah. And that filtered through their music to me. Um, and then Beatles, like the Beatles floodgates opened for me probably as a teenager. Yep. And then once that gate is open, it's like, okay, well, there's The Who and The Kinks and The Yardbirds. Um, 
Rolling Stones, you know. Mm. Um, let's not forget the Stones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then as you get older, you discover other British rock bands or American rock bands. But okay, so I guess to pinpoint it, probably in the mid seventies with Fox on the Run by the Sweet. Yeah, so that was mid seventies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I, I recall from memory. I think it was seventy five, but mm. I'd need you or, or one of your your listeners to fact check that for me without the yeah. Google machine in front of me. But I, every time I see that single in a shop, I buy it. Yeah, I've got. I've still got the original my brother and I had when we were kids, but on the rare occasion that I do a DJ set, I always make sure I've got a copy of Fox on the Run. Mm. It's still a great sounding track too, isn't it? It's astounding. Yeah. Like that synthesizer opening and, and just the power of the band coming in. But mm. I think Sweet may have been unfortunately dismissed due to their pop status, but they rocked, man. Like each member of that each member of that original lineup were virtuosos, mm. um, you know, in their own way. Mick Tucker on the drums was just an absolute beast. Yeah. Um, Andy, Steve and Brian were all brilliant musicians, you know. Um, I, I, I feel that may might be overlooked, but I think when you talk to musos and when you scratch musos and when you scratch the surface of the suite, people, you know, they have that sort of, Glazed eyed, knowing not of how good they were, you know. Okay. The singles that they had in that period, 75 to 80, are just phenomenal. Yeah. Okay. And um, even um, guest programmed Rage last year. Was yeah. that your first time doing that? Yes, our first time. Ah. And we programmed, it was filmed in November 2019. Okay. So, you know, the wonderful world of 2020 meant that it got aired a bit later. Right. Um, yeah, sorry, and, uh, and there was a comma there, and I cut you off. No, no, it's all right. I mean, it must have been, well, great to do that, obviously, and pick everyone's sort of playlist yeah. for, the, for the night and early morning. Is that something you've been wanting to do it was, all these years? Yeah, it was It was an absolute <laughs> wish list thing yeah. for us. Um, and and with that come, comes the, the, um, the dilemma, you know, who do you – who do you leave off the boat? You know, yeah. like all, all the Aussie bands that we came up with in the nineties and two thousands, I kind of made a, a little bit of a blanket decision to not play anyone so that I wouldn't offend anyone. Right. Of all my mates, okay. which it's a, it's a little bit of a cop out. Um, but I think we, we might've played a snout song just as a representative of all the Aussie acts that we, um, not representing all the Aussie acts, but as a hat tip to the fact that we, had peers that we left off off our playlist only because we didn't have enough time to playlist mm. them all. So it was exciting, but it's also a dilemma because there's a lot yeah. of music you have to leave off, and it, and you've got three people in the band, so each each member has a finite amount of songs to yeah to playlist. So it was a little bit like in um, Wizard of Oz when you get behind the curtain <laughs> and you see there's a dude there with a machine. It's like yeah, you imagine what programming rage would be like mm. having never been able to do it, but then when you get to do it, it's like. Oh shit! We only get this amount of songs. That's <laughs> tougher than you think. Yeah, yeah, but it's, mean, it's, it was great. And actually, yeah. I I had a fun I had fun watching it on. I watched it in real time at home and mm. stayed up all night watching it, just enjoying the music that we we picked. And we were um, definitely showing our age and our roots. <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, sticking with the whole TV thing, obviously, being in a band in the nineties in Australia, you know, we had that awesome show called Recovery which even featured on a few times. Um, 
I think was your first appearance playing Mayfair Laundry Bus in 1998. And you had short hair. Yes, I had short hair. Yes. I think I'm due for a haircut. Um, <laughs> I think, look, I think we might have been on there in 96 as well. Okay, yeah. But um, I've got a couple of VHS tapes of the recovery, and there's some, there's some online, but mm. um, man, what can you say about recovery? It was just such a... Such a godsend having a, a live music show in the nineties, and and the funny thing is, the shoot was so early, mm. and often ourselves or other bands would have had gigs the night before. Mm. Some bands probably didn't even get to go to bed, but um, yeah, it was brilliant. And you have a a, a potential audience there, just um, some kids who might not get to go to gigs in the city or go to licensed venues. They have this chance to see a band that they. Is right in front of them, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a regurgitator over there. There's magic dirt over here, and there's um Jebediah, you know, Jebediah, or yeah, um, had the Foo Fighters on there as well. Yeah, yeah, they, they had a lot of a yeah. lot of big acts and John, John Spencer and um, yeah, it was um, it was it was brilliant. Like, mm. it it seems a world away now. It does yeah? I mean, we sort of uh, grew up with that. Every Saturday morning, you know, chuck on the TV early in the morning and Dylan Lewis, you know, he was perfect for that. Yeah. And um, it was just such a great show. Yeah. And you really, I mean, you did appreciate it at the time, but even more so now because we don't sort of have anything like that anymore. No, I you're don't right. Think. We don't have a, a morning time, a weekend morning show with comedy sketches and live music and touring bands mm. popping in and it was just good fun. Yeah. You know? Do you yeah. think we're really missing a show like that in today's landscape? Like, even if it's just within Australia, we're just really missing yeah. that sort of show? Um, yeah. And unfortunately, it it can't be, you know, you can't reheat the souffle, as I like to say, because um, with um, digital media being what it is now, mm. the, uh, the allure of free-to-air TV doesn't have... It doesn't hold the same weight as it did in the pre-internet kind of era. Mm. You know, like I'm old enough to know that on oh, Sunday night there's a show that I want to watch and I'll watch it yeah. in real time. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas nowadays you can watch anything anywhere, anytime, mm. pretty essentially. You know, you don't really miss anything. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think we miss it and I think we, we need something like that. But unfortunately I don't think – it, it would be hard to cultivate the excitement given that everything is so accessible and spread out now mm. and everything's available almost, you know, around the clock. Mm. So I, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not sure if the excitement would be there if there was a live music show. I, I, it would be great if there was one. Yeah, because, I mean, it was great for a – you know, fans of music, but it was also great for the bands. You know, it was a great outlet for the bands to jump, jump on and play your music because there doesn't seem to be anything like that now. I know it's a totally different time, but was there talk of bringing that back? Um, I, I'm not sure. I, I There could have been. Mm. I know um, ABC had a show called The Set mm. on last year, uh, 2019. And um, some of the people that I've worked with at the ABC have 
had a hand in that show getting off the ground. That's a similar concept, you know, a bunch of live music, almost like a Jules Holland thing where there's a few different artists in a almost like a club environment, which is nice, but more of a nighttime kind of thing. And then you might recall Recovery went to nights for a while there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, right. So that was it was kind of like the that was the end of that sort of journey. Um, yeah, I don't know if Recovery had – I think there was probably talk of an isolated kind of um, – you know, maybe a nostalgic one-off or something, but Spicks and Specs has had a, had, had a bit of a repeat series as well. Mm. Was, yeah. It's just a different time now with everything, like I said yeah. before, just – and I'm, I'm the same as any other civilian. I, I'll, you know, I'll get on YouTube and look at, you know, a Kiss Prince conference for Creatures of the Night yeah. or Bob Seger live in freaking, you know, Toronto or something. Um, you know, it, it's a great joy to be able to find things – instantaneously but mm. the downside is that i don't think there'd be much of a, of a um maybe i'm wrong maybe maybe there would be a market for a live tv show <laughs> yeah yeah it was just such a great time like um i mean being a fan of music in the 90s and discovering it like myself it was it was great and then i can imagine was like was that one of the best periods of time to be in a band, I know you weren't in a band in the 60s or 70s. That would have been great too, I'd imagine, and even the 80s. Yeah. But the 90s just, like, had a charm. It, you, yeah, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. Yeah. yeah. What, what are some of your favourite memories from those days, like when well, the band started? I think what we were sort of alluding to it in our other chat about Nirvana, when the kind of – the, the whole sort of scene changed to the point where it wasn't so image-based, like pop music wasn't. Like in the 80s and probably the late 80s, mid-80s pop scene and, and late 80s, you know, sort of, for want of a better word, hair metal scene, things were so image-driven that it was often at the expense of the music, whereas in the early 90s it sort of reversed, whereas the music was the focus and the image was secondary. Mm. So it enabled bands to put music first and not feel they had to be the the whole package, you know? Like yeah. if Duran Duran had looked like a bunch of Bricky's labourers, would they have been so successful? We're not sure, you know? Like it's all part of the excitement of rock and roll is the image of a group. But I think the Nirvana kind of wave of, of popularity and, and the cultural shift that came with that it probably it may have opened up people to be a bit more free with themselves and um I'm gonna wear my converse on stage tonight. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna wear this torn cardigan. Mm. Um it certainly liberated me. Like I I go through phases every week about um what how you present yourself publicly. Yeah. Um but that period was great. You could rock up in anything and, and it was accepted like getting to your word about the charm of that period mm. each band had their own kind of vibe and uh, there was a great a really sweet spot for me probably around 95 96 when our band had sort of been around for a year or two and there seemed to be a, a real a kind of um community mentality before each band sort of had aspirations to go beyond the community of their bands like I just remember the scene around the Evelyn and the Punners Club in Rodzik Street was a real, just a real um, hotbed, for want of a better word, of bands that mm. um, that we played with and and felt an affinity with. Okay, 
because we we're all fairly um fairly unassuming bands, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, it was it was a great time. It was a really really cool time. I probably didn't appreciate it as much at the time as I should have because I was probably hung up on. You know, living in it, living in it, and <laughs> and having you know, neurotic twenty something, yeah. you know, personality traits. <laughs> so it was definitely a feeling of a scene as such. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely, and it was great. And I think, you know, like the, the sort of the um the ripples of the whole Nirvana mm. um impact mm. permeated through a whole bunch of different um sort of urban music. Um, communities um so all the bands around that time like in that scene that you're talking about were they all really supportive of each other in general i felt yeah. they were i felt yeah um, i felt that there was like i said before real community spirit like yeah you even even now there's a similar kind of mentality whereas oh we're playing can we use your back line can you can i use your amp like that that sort of became known to me when we went up to Sydney for the first time we slept on uh, uh, someone's, you know, floor or couch. We used to crash at each other's houses, you know. Our b- bands would stay at each other's houses in, when they travelled into state and borrow each other's gear. And yeah. it was it was really cool. Like mm. there was um, – at that point, I don't think anyone was jockeying for kind of top dog status. There was always going to be – a bit of that involved, depending on your personality type. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it was a really cool time. You know, I've got friends that I made in the 90s that I'm still, you know, really, really good friends with. Yeah. And I, made them, I met these people through the music biz. And, and that goes above and beyond all the moving parts of being in a band. You know, like how many records did you sell? How many people came to your gig? Did you get in the area chart? All that stuff is kind of pretty much irrelevant when you think of the connections you've made with people along the way, you know, your bandmates included, you know. Yeah. Um, that's what is constant. Everything else is all changeable, you know. It must be incredible to share everything you've shared with the same three guys or the same two other guys Yeah. going on this journey. Together, yeah, I think yeah, it's it's pretty surreal. I mean, it's there's a bit of luck involved as well because um, you know it can be a bit of a fluke if if there's a, a combination of people that can work together. Mm. You know, it's um, for that for that extended period because a lot of a lot of bands in the past burn brightly yeah. and then that's it; they can't put it back together. Mm. So um, yeah, it, it's been it's been an absolute um, uh, advantage, you know, just in terms on a, on a, just on a personal level, being able to, um, for the most part, get things done as a, as a trio as a unit. Yeah, yeah, know, without um. You know, being accountable to each other and ourselves, you know. Yeah. All right, so 2021 even, we've got a new album coming out. Uh, we've got those support shows with Died Pretty. What other shows? Have you got any other shows or tours booked or hoping to book? Um, 
Well, I, I reckon my prediction is due to the um, busyness of our individual lives and working schedules, I reckon um, well, we're playing Boogie Festival at Easter. Cool. So between Boogie and the Died Pretty Supports, I think we'll probably keep our heads down until Christmas time. Okay. And um, come back uh, all guns blazing around Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. And then that'll give um, whoever might be interested in hearing the new album, they'll give them a chance to absorb the record. Mm-hmm. And then by Christmas time, we might play a few songs off it and, and they won't be um, alien. Cool. Yeah. All right. Look forward to the new album. Thank you very much. Awesome. I hope I hope, I hope, uh, hope no one's put off by long guitar solos. <laughs> There's plenty <laughs> of not, them. I'm looking forward to it. Let me tell you, like it's, uh, you know, I've, I've let myself off the chain, Craig. Oh, dear. <laughs> yes, All it's, right. it's, 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 uh, <laughs> well, your stuff is very tasteful, so, you depends, know. Depends, depends <laughs> if you like that kind of stuff. <laughs> it is a matter of taste, yeah. It's not, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but that's the only tea I know how to make. No. <laughs> cool, cool. <laughs> Sorry, dude. Yes. I think it might be. All right, we'll get back to that later. Yeah. It's, it's just a monster. It's a masterpiece. Yeah, it is an absolute freaking masterpiece. Yeah. Um, God. Yep. Yeah, but it, it's it's just extraordinary. An yep. extraordinary song. Yep. Every aspect, like the lyrics are brilliant. Mm-hmm. It's got a rock out section. It's got a brushes. Like, is it the only Zeppelin song where Bonham plays brushes on? Oh, is it? Yeah, I, I think it could be. Okay. I mean, he uses, stick, he uses sticks live, but yeah. pretty sure when he enters on the kit, um, he's playing brushes. Okay. Like, yeah, don't quote me on that one, but... And John Paul Jones on piano, mellotron and bass, <laughs> if you don't mind. Yeah, if you don't mind. Okay, now... <laughs> Uh, so let's uh, let's talk about Ash and some of your guitars. Tell us about some of your. You were talking about your maiden earlier, your favourite old maiden. Um, what are what are some of your other favourite guitars you've got, and how many have you got? Oh gee, I, I've got a few, but I haven't got as many as um, Rick. Um, Rick from Cheap Trick. <laughs> um. Yeah, look, I've got probably too many, but I actually I did a bit of a grown up thing last year and the year before. I sold a few guitars. Oh, yeah. So um, I feel like a bit of an adult now. Okay. How was that? <laughs> it was. That um, it felt great because yeah. um, it was just practical, and mm. you know, twenty twenty being twenty twenty, I thought you know, I'm not gigging. Mm. They're sitting in a in a in a case. Um, in a storage uh, shed, so yeah, I, I thought I'd be a bit more practical and, and offload a few. Um, okay. 
Well, that mate that you mentioned that I, I it's a late nineties maiden. Uh, it's yep. got block inlays on the on the neck, and it reminded me of the um, the Beatles. You know, it had a bit of a look about it that was sort of reminiscent of the Beatles Gibson acoustics they used to play. For some reason, it just struck me, and I was at the Maiden factory. I think I was there. I don't know why I was there. It was late nineties, um, and I just saw it on the on the rack, and I thought, "Gee, that's nice." And I looked at the price tag, and I think it was out of my range at the time. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> oh, I'm almost embarrassed to say, but I rang up David from Rubber Records. God bless him, and I I said, "David, do you reckon?" Um, I could get an advance or borrow some money to grab this guitar. <laughs> and he was really, really kind, and, and I think he loaned me half of what the guitar was worth. Yeah. It was, it was, I don't know how much it was, probably a couple of grand or something, but at the time, um, it, and at any point in time, a couple of grand is not always easy to come by. Mm. Anyway, long story short, I bought the guitar, and it was just – Probably the most deluxe thing that I, I had owned as an acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. And I was 28, you know. I'd, I'd had sort of okay-ish guitars up to that point, but um, bought a Rickenbacker when I was about 18. So it had been about 10 years since I'd bought a deluxe instrument. Yeah. Um, and that guitar has been on every every recording that I've done since. Uh, yes, yeah, so that's from 1998 till now. Mm-hmm. That guitar has been on every record I've made that's featured an acoustic guitar. It's not a twelve string, isn't it? You you no. got a separate twelve string? Yeah, I got I got um I got a twelve E about six years ago, um a couple of friends of mine um one uh, Julian from the Stems was doing a bit of work for Mayton and and Paul at Mayton um took it upon himself to to give me this twelve string acoustic. And is that the guitar you play on uh, Indian, what's that song from your solo album? Um, Indian, Indian Bells. Bells. Um, is that a 12-string on there? It's actually my mate in six. Ah, oh, okay. But it's in a tuning not dissimilar to the tuning of one of your guitars. Yeah. It's in an open C tuning, Yep. but it's a David Crosby tuning. Right. It sounds huge. Yeah, well, I... Um, yeah, I, I I record it on my phone and just like, wow, that sounds good. And instead of me having to go through the, the ordeal of having to learn it and re-record it properly, I just use the phone <laughs> recording. Because, <laughs> right. you know, phones being what they are, they, they record fairly decent audio. Yeah. Um, no, so that's that's the – you know what? I don't think it's either of those guitars. I think it might be my uh, Suzuki. Right. I know. It might be my Morris um, Dreadnought. God, I, I don't keep notes about these things. <laughs> but it's a six. Six it's acoustic. It's not actually a 12. Oh, pretty like a 12. I'm pretty sure it's a six with all the droning strings. It sounds like a 12. Yeah, okay. Right. Yep. No, I'll, I'm thinking about it now. I'll probably go and listen to it and say, no, I'll call you up in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's actually the 12, mate. <laughs> um, do you remember what actually drew you to wanting to play guitar? Like, obviously, you're probably a music fan, but what was it about the guitar that I, I don't know. suckered I, you in? don't know i think probably the sweet fox on the run but that said that guitar on that track is is very prominent but it's it's also the drumming and the vocals on that track that drew me in as well Mm. uh my brother had a guitar he had a guitar lying around that was a present and it lay lay around for ages and i just picked it up one day and plucked it it's like 
That sounds awesome. Yeah. Even just the, the, the low E string, just plucking it, you know, it's like, mm. I like that sound. Yeah. It wasn't, not, I'm trying to think back to what got me started sometimes and it wasn't like a huge decision you make. You just sort of either stick with it or you don't. Yeah. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I, I won't lie to you. I think being a Kiss fan mm. um, really encouraged my love of guitars because, and I'm going to say his name properly, Ace Fraley Ooh. was a massive influence on me as a child. Like he, um, he was a superstar, you know, of the 70s. And he played a freaking Les Paul, you know, like, mm. and and that was like I was just completely obsessed with Kiss and and with Ace in particular because, you know, like his persona was it was out of this world, you know. It was mm. like no no one looks like that, no one plays like that. They really did inspire a lot Man. of uh, bands, didn't they? Well, yeah, it was incredible. Like you know. In the seventies, you know, they were, they were at the absolute peak of their powers, and and um, like a lot of bands, they became a pathway to other bands. You know, like the Stones, and you know, because um, they did a, a Stones cover on the Dynasty album, and I I didn't know that was a Stones song. Which Two thousand man. Oh. yeah. So Ace did a Stones cover and. You know, I, I've discovered a lot of good bands through other, other, other bands. You know, but um, that's I, I'd say between the Sweet and Kiss, it's like it was almost undeniable that I and my brother's guitar and the sound that a one string made. It was like, yeah, I think this is this is where I'm heading. Yeah, it was just the feel of it. Um, and I, I was talking to you before about, um, you know, we've got no musicians in my family. My uncle played a bit of guitar. Um, and, you know, he passed away quite a while ago and I opened his guitar case after a while of it being closed and just the, <laughs> the smell, like the, I guess the musky sort of smell with the sort of stale strings. Yeah. I don't know. It did just, it made me want to play. Well, it's, it's a, an intoxicating aroma. <laughs> Is that the right word? Yeah. Aroma? Yeah. That's a word, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the, the lining of a guitar case. Mm. I remember um, a similar experience when I bought my Rickenbacker. I was a trolley boy at a supermarket and I saved up all my money for a Rickenbacker. Yeah. How Disney is that? <laughs> and I had a similar experience yeah. and I opened the case up and it's like probably like the the, the musical equivalent of, of, of a car, the fresh upholstery on a, in, a, mm-hmm. in a car. The car smell? Yeah. New car smell? Yeah. Like new guitar smell is something, yeah. and, but like you said, uh, you know, old musty guitar smell as well. Like it's, uh, it's a smell unto itself. Like music shops in the eighties smelt like that. Oh yeah, okay. you know, swap shops got a bit of that vibe about it. You know, yeah, like a, a flight case that might have been sitting in the corner for thirty years. You know, mm. it's got that kind of woody, earthy, uh, kind of stench to it. Yeah, <laughs> or you know, a fragrance, I should say. <laughs> Uh, what's your what's your go to electric guitar for even? I know you play a few different ones, but yeah, I I, I do indulge a bit with changing them around. But I th- I've got to say, I reckon the Epiphone Casino, mm-hmm. um, it just covers all the bases. Like it's it's just a beautiful guitar, and I got lucky with a 
I got one off the off the shelf at Allen's Music in the mid nineties. I um I just bought it off the rack, you know. Um, you know, I, I don't think I'd ever walked into a guitar shop per se, but Allen's was a music store, and I just had that um, the Blonde Casino, and this is quite a few years before the Lennon casinos were produced, so it had that look about it, and I thought, yeah, I want the I want the casino that looks like John Lennon's casino. Yeah, cool. And and I just fell in love with it immediately, and mm. I think I've had the guitar repaired maybe maybe three or four times since I've had it. Yeah, and I, and I've had it since nineteen ninety six. Yeah, so I I bought it with my first publishing check. I think <laughs> I can't remember exactly, but um, cool. Yeah, it's just it's a beautiful guitar. Like it's you know. A Korean Epiphone, it's, you know, what you see is what you get, but um, it, it's not much that guitar can't do. Um, has it got two humbuckers in it, or is it? Two single coils. Oh, right. P90-style pickups, okay. yeah, with the metal covers. Um, so it's it's kind of got a bit of a bite to it. Mm. It's also got the warmth that, yeah, I mean, I think McCartney – Refers to the casino as his desert island guitar. <laughs> yeah. And do you keep that in like a standard tuning? I do, yeah. yeah. I, I don't mess around with it too much because um, yeah. it's, you know, being all in one piece, so I don't want to stress the neck out too much. So I, I, I try yeah. and keep it in standard and I uh, I just want to play it now. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> um. So I'm just going to get into some guitar nerd stuff. Mate, that I'm a... I love it. I, I live for this stuff. Okay. All right, cool. <laughs> well, I'm not a big tech guy. So nor I'm, am I. Not, not I, real complicated no, about no, this stuff. Nor am I. I I'm not yeah. a tech guy, but I love guitars. So, I, yep. you know. All right. Well, what's your, what's your go-to sort of pick? Like what sort of gauge? Okay. All right. Well, uh, I think it's a 75. I've been buying the the Herco um the Herco picks, and this is super fanboy stuff because I read that David Gilmore uses them All right. and I read that Jimmy Page used them in the 70s mm-hmm. and I figured, okay, well, they must be comfortable, but um, I use Herco's because they've got grip on them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, Herco uh, Flex, I think they're called. Uh, right. They're grey picks. And for me, I need grip because I, I feel like sometimes if I haven't got grip on the pick, I feel a little bit... Um, Vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. How about you? What is, what's your favourite pick? Well, I was using – I've got a few different ones. I'm a little bit indecisive these days. Yeah. So I kind of – I'm picking up a different one sort of every few songs, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, a bunch of different Tortex ones, um, mainly the one mil blue one, especially for electric stuff, which yeah. I don't do much of these days. Sometimes that's a bit heavy with the acoustic stuff. Yeah, I'd feel that would slip out of my hand too much. Maybe my fingerprints wore off over time, but yeah. <laughs> I, I need some. I need some grip. <laughs> yeah, well, I've been trying out these. Oh, uh, Jim Dunlop. Yeah, I bought a packet of those. Like, oh no, actually, no, I didn't buy a packet of these. There you go. Got yeah. some grip for an old man like me. Yeah, a bit slippery though. I've dropped a few of those <laughs> just in rehearsal, but uh, yeah, usually some of the. Tortex ones, I guess. Yeah, just I just like gauges. I just like something that I can hang on to because, um, yeah. like I said, I, I don't sweat a lot, but um, 
I just uh, I just need something with a bit of there. Yeah, yeah, now you're talking. Yeah. Just a Dunlop. Yeah. Yeah, I was using the one mil, which is the black one of those. Yeah. For a while. That's what Wally uses on his bass, the one mil blacks. Oh, okay. And in the in the late nineties, I had a flirtation with using one mil picks on the guitar, and yeah. I just I, I enjoyed it, but I feel that there's probably just a bit too much attack, you know. Okay. I think I like to have a little bit of give. Yep. Um. Yeah, the Herco seventy fives. Man, if anyone's interested in exploring them they're really cool because um i sound really tech now you get the purchase you get the purchase on the on the note but you also have the stability of the pick not feeling like it's going to slip away mm. which th- those those ones for me unfortunately they don't suit my fingers <laughs> do most music shops sell them or are they a, a rarity no you some some do some don't they're yeah. like pg tips tea bags you gotta get you gotta know where to find them <laughs> but i just i just um i usually buy them in bulk um, online when I get the urge, you know, right? When okay. my when my jar starts running down, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and do you have a practice routine? Like, um, you know, I know you probably play quite often, so you keep your chops up anyway. But when you're sitting around at home or warming up for a gig, do you actually warm up and practice? Um, in recent times, I have been warming up before gigs at, at the at the venue, depending on how comfortable it is to pick up a guitar and and um strum a few things before a show. And I've been inspired by the great Pete Luscombe, who um, is the drummer in Rockwiz and Paul Kelly's band. He is a dedicated warm-up guy. Mm -hmm. He'll go away half an hour before a show, put on his headphones, grab a drum pad, some sticks, and he'll warm up. And by the time he hits the stage, he's warm, you know. And, And I was doing that for a little while particularly on the Paul Kelly shows during the Groove and the Moo tour we did a few years ago. Um, Earlier in the night, I'd have my guitar backstage and I'd just be practicing some of the more intricate solos, some of the Steve Connolly solos from the the, the Paul, Paul Kelly repertoire that um, a bit challenging for me to play, you know. I, I try and make sure that I, I play them true to the originals. So they're the ones I have to practice. I practice those quite a bit before too long to her door, those kind of solos which are ingrained in people's minds, Yeah, you know. You can't freeform those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, furthermore, to your question, I have a um, a home thing that I do, which is super geeky, but it's a exercise that I made up myself, <laughs> based on um, using every finger on my left hand on every string, mm-hmm. up and down the neck. Not scales. They're not scales. They're just exercises to make sure that I'm utilizing all my fingers and I work my way up and back. And I should be doing this every day, but I mm. do it whenever I can. Some days I've gone without playing a guitar and I think, how come I didn't play a guitar today? Yeah, I think it sounds like I do something similar. I got it out of a uh, guitar magazine, just like. Yeah. And then obviously. then sort of change up the <laughs> See, I don't think my brain could cope with that hey. <laughs> I don't think my brain could cope with that oh. <laughs> well my fingers kind of just that's great do it after a while yeah but, um... no I think it's good just to it's it's an exercise you know it's yeah. an exercise your fingers and your brain I know it sounds so basic but yeah um Pete and I have talked about this in the past like practice is is crucial you know mm. I I should practice singing, 
I should practice songwriting. <laughs> I should practice guitar playing. I end up practicing this, you know, weird fingering fret by fret thing, yep. which is um, kind of a bit kooky, but it means that I'm playing, you know, it means that I'm, I'm um, but I guess given the nature of what I do throughout most of the year is that I'm playing a lot of um, repertoires by other artists. So I'm, I'm actually exercising my brain by mm. learning those different repertoires. Yeah, yeah some of which I've contributed to, some of which I haven't. So I'm learning other people's parts a lot of the time, right? which is a, is a, is a, a real challenge. Well, let's get into that. Um, I mean, obviously you work with a lot of different artists, um, Paul Kelly being one, um, I think Vicar and Linda you've worked with, yeah. um, the Meanies, uh, the Ronson Hang-Up, the Stems, the Swarm, which some of these are your bands as well. Um, you or my, have you worked with you or my? I sat in with them once at, a, at a, a gig for the North Melbourne Footy Club, but I haven't recorded with them. Or, but I play with Davey quite regularly in the Marshmallow Overcoat. Right. Yeah. So you know, I've played with Davey on and off, and Brett from that band. You know, since the late nineties in different configurations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, and there's a whole. I mean, there's a whole list of artists and bands that you'll play with. Uh, one of my favourites, Bob Evans, aka Kevin Mitchell from um, Jebediah. Um, I think I saw you guys, or you played with him maybe a couple of years ago. And how long? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. 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 And did you, he's just about to release a new album and you're in the video for the new single. Did you play on the whole album? Yeah, I did. Yeah. It was that, that lineup. Um, gee, what a band. Mm. Richard Bradbeer on bass, Lachlan O'Kane on drums, James Fleming on keyboards, Kevin on guitar and vocals, and let's let's not be around the bush. Kevin is a really good guitar player. Yeah, like he he plays all these all these parts on the demos, and then he he asks me very kindly, "Oh, could you play this part?" So, like, dude, this is perfect. Why do you want me to play this? Like, <laughs> um, but he's very gracious in that regard because he he asked me to come in and play on this particular recording. I hadn't played on a Kev record up until that point. Um, yeah, so we we tracked that record together. That was in February 2020. Mm-hmm. So that was before the shutdown. Just before. Yeah, that was yeah. Um, right on the cusp of it, actually, because the, the following week he had a session of vocals, and it was not long after that that things just started really just shutting down wholesale. Mm. So we got to track that record, which was brilliant, and, and the songs are fantastic. Like, yeah, Ke- Kevin is just a beautiful guy really gracious artist to work with like funny charming <laughs> um and i've known kev since he was a teenager and that sounds really patronizing and sort of old man-esque but i've known him <laughs> since jebediah were kicking around and yeah we used to see each other backstage at festivals and they became yeah this really hot ticket signed to murmur and it got really popular and I'm going to brag a bit right now. They actually mentioned Even in one of their songs. Oh, cool. Back in one of their album tracks. Yeah, we're going to see Even or something. It's like, that's so sweet, you know. And it's always been great running into Kevin and, and actually sweet and surreal now that I, I um, have played music with him on stage. His music, you know, like it's pretty surreal. Um, actually, even back to him in Tamworth one year, I think. Might have been Tamworth or. Even did a couple of shows with Kevin right. as well, which is even more surreal because it's like 
singer of Jebediah and the rock band even getting together to play Kev's music in, it, it's pretty freaky. But um, look, he's he's brilliant. He's um, super organised, a bit like Paul actually, like super organised, everything's demoed, everything's written, all the parts are kind of sussed out, but there's also leeway for you to flavour it Mm-hmm. As you as you sort of see fit within the realms of what you do. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, his solo stuff. Um, I mean, I, I like Jebediah, but I really got into his solo stuff as Bob Evans. Um, and I think I had discovered it at the right time around 2010, 11, 12, when I was sort of starting to take on more of an acoustic thing myself and I became Acoustic Fox. And his Goodnight Bull Creek album was just exactly what i needed and yeah. um it's such a great great record some beautiful songs on that um, record but every album he releases is just brilliant yeah and um i haven't been able to get to to many of his shows as i'd like so i'm hoping with this new album and hopefully more shows happening that i'll be able to get yeah, to a few well, i i personally hope that i'm there to play the shows with him and um you can be my guest. Oh, wicked. Awesome. You can be my guest. Um, how's this for freaky? Um, <laughs> I'm doing a show at April 15 with the church and he's opening up. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. Are you playing with him? Well, I don't think it's solo? a band show. <laughs> I think it might be just Kev Solo, but yeah. I haven't been – his management haven't asked me if I'm available to play with Kev that night. But um, in theory, I am because I'm going to be there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of – it's pretty pretty strange, but – um. I didn't plan it like that, mate, I promise. <laughs> yeah, so tell us about that, um, your gig with the church. and. Well, that's another surreal. Um, yeah. All right. Do you want the long story or the short story? Up to you. I'm here. Okay. I'll give you the long story. Give us the long story. Okay. Let's do it. All right. So in May 2019, even went to Brisbane to play a, a one-day festival at the Trifford venue. I think it was called Autumn Fall Festival. And it was curated um, sort of for guitar, power poppy kind of rootsy alternative bands, and we were invited to come and play, which we thought, this is great, let's do it. We went up. On the day of that show, we recorded a song in the afternoon at Jeff Lovejoy's studio in Brisbane, which became a single unto itself called Mark the Days. So we recorded this track in the afternoon, say between, you know, 1 and 5 p.m., got our gear, went to the venue, set up, did a sound check, played the show. And on the bill that night was um, Ian from Powderfinger. Ian and JC played a set with their old band from their pre-Powderfinger days. Um, I think the Predators or the Creatures, I think they're called Predators. You might want to quote me on that before this goes out. Okay. Anyway, we just done our set, and I'd been doing a lot of this sort of David Gilmore-y kind of, you know, you know, flared, long-haired guitar solos. And I can see it now. Ian looks at me at the end of the set. He goes, oh, that was great, man. Hey, you should join the church. <laughs> And up to this point, Ian had been in the band for about four or five years. Yeah. And I must have looked, given him some, given him some weird look. And it's like, how, hang on, how can I join the church? You've already got, you've already got, you know, yourself and Peter, one of the greatest guitarists walking 
the planet. And then it became known to me that Peter was on the verge of exiting the group and, and you know, the, the details of which I'm not privy to because it's not really my business. But, um, you know, Ian goes, you should join the church, man. He said, oh, I just texted Steve during, you know, at the end of your set. We should get Ashley to join the band, you know. <laughs> and, and I said, I, I don't know, man. Like, what, what, I don't know what's happening with your with, with the band, but, like, so Steve and I had a phone chat uh, probably two days after that. I think it was Monday, two days after, and Steve and I had a really nice chat. And I'd met Steve and worked with Steve on Rockwiz before. And let's be honest, I'm a massive fan of what he does. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and as a teenager, I was an obsessive fan of the church, you know, because they were something out of the ordinary. They were just something else, you know, like... I love the oils, I love the gurus, I love the stems, I love the easy beats, I love sweet, I love kiss. But the church was something something else, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so when the opportunity came to join the band, I was kind of um, a little bit fraught. It's like, well, do I, am I preserving or desecrating the legacy of this band by joining them? And I decided to um, not overthink it and just accept accept this invitation and that's how I ended up joining the church. Um, that said, um, we haven't played a show since I joined. We've done some recording. Okay. So it's, a lot of it's just, it, a lot of it's just um, Zoom chats and sort of, strat- you know, getting a strategy in place when we do a show, which is next weekend. Right. And that involved me um, listening to a lot of church music over the last year or two. You know, like getting inside it in yeah. a different way. So how much of the back catalogue have you had to learn? Uh, there's, a, there's a pretty hefty portion. I think, um, you know, at a church concert you'd probably expect to hear, you know, a lot of the songs that they're known for, you mm. know, Almost With You and Unguarded Moment, Milky Way and Metropolis and um, even some of the earlier stuff like you took some of the album tracks from that period, but there's a, there's a whole wealth of material that the band has recorded up, up till now, you know, so I've had to sort of dive in quite deeply in the albums that I wasn't as familiar with. But, um, yeah, I've, I've got my head around, you know, a lot of the material and learning those songs for me has not been a chore. It's been an absolute thrill because I love the music so much, you know. It's going to be exciting to play the first show. Well, exciting and absolutely, I'll be panic stricken as it's well. Quite a build up. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, it's it's like an AFL. Someone likened it to um, an AFL draftee who injures their injures themselves in, you know, the VFL or something. Waits two years to play a game. It's a bit like that. But um, I I, I just think I hope I can bring the just the right mentality to what's required, you, you know, I think I know what makes the band tick on a guitar level mm-hmm. and I hope I can contribute in that regard, you know, because I, um, I do have an affinity with the kind of music they make. So, yeah, and I think with Peter's parts, in the same way that I respect Steve Connolly's guitar parts in the Paul Kelly repertoire, it's like people know these parts and yeah. it's not my job to reinvent them or rewrite them, you know? Yeah, we um, sort of hear them on the radio every day and those parts are ingrained in our minds. 
Yeah. And well, it would be cool to hear your take on it. Well, it'll be a slightly, um, <laughs> you know, a slightly modified version of what um, came before, obviously. Like, you know, I, I can't overstate what influence Marty and Peter had on me as a music fan mm. from the church and in the same way that Jim and Martin did from the Oils, you know, like these people were, like I said, <laughs> I had the pleasure of telling them to their faces the other day, they're like alchemists, like Jim and Martin from Midnight Oil, like, when you're a teenager, this this stuff is is coming at you. It's like, you know, you're feeding off it, this guitar energy. It's like, mm. I could play that. I can't play that. Oh, I can, you know, like, you know, to be in a position to play that music with, with, um, with Steve. You know, it it it's a thrill. I just want to do it justice. Yeah. yeah. Well, best of luck. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um. And speaking of Midnight Oil, you released a um, a single in their honour, which was released 35 years ago, uh, one of their classics, Hercules. Yeah. Is it just the single, that single that you re-recorded and released? Yeah, just a digital single. Um, yeah. What happened was um, in 2015 I was doing some recording in Sydney and it happened to be at, <laughs> I sound like a... A big name dropper right now. It was at Jim's studio, Jim Magini's studio in Sydney. We were doing a soundtrack for an animated Beatles um, series called Beat Bugs. And I had some downtime, so what I thought I would do, and my brother reminded me that at that point in time, in 2015, it was the anniversary, at that point, the 30th anniversary of the Species Deceases EP. And that's the four-track EP they put out in 85, Mm -hmm. um, which featured Hercules. And I thought... I'll do a version for my brother. I um I did a version of Hercules to as a as a audio present to my brother. Okay. Um and then I left it in the archives because I didn't want to release it on its own steam because I had no ulterior motive for recording the song. It wasn't to draw attention to myself um in a What's the word I'm looking for? In, a, in, a, in an insincere way. I, I wanted to do this oils cover purely for my brother. Uh, anyway, one thing led to another. Jim rocked up to the studio the next day and he heard it and he was supportive of my quest to record an oils song. Yeah. Even helped me out on playing some guitar on the end of it, believe oh, it or not. Oh, cool. So <laughs> fast, fast forward five years. Yeah. And now it's 35th anniversary. Yeah. Um, my brother reminded me again, hey, it's the 35th anniversary of Species Deceases. You should think about putting that track out. So I, um, I put it out on Bandcamp with the proceeds going to Support Act. Yeah, yeah. Because I didn't want to make any money from doing an oils cover. Mm-hmm. I wanted to um, make sure that if it, it generated anything, even a few bucks, that it that was going to a good cause. Because, I mean, they were a band that encouraged me as a teenager to open my eyes and ears to things that I might not have been exposed to, Yeah, you know. So it was my way of uh, honouring their legacy and um, – you know, having some fun doing an oil song for a start, but also making sure that the proceeds, they weren't going to me, they were going to um, people in the industry who were out of work or whatever like that. Yeah. yeah. So that's um, still available on your band camp? I believe so. I think it's been yeah. available, you know, yep. in perpetuity. Is that the right word? Yes. I'll yeah. put a link in the show notes for sure, that. Um, and obviously, yeah, the proceeds go to a, a good cause. Yeah. Um, I was uh, I was actually YouTubing even um, the other Uh-oh. day, Uh-oh. which is where I pulled up a few old interviews. But 
I stumbled across this thing, um, the Beatles' 50th anniversary rooftop tribute. Uh, you recorded in Melbourne back in January 2019. Yep, um, sounds about right. Uh, with a few few familiar faces, obviously yourself, um, Brett uh, Wolfenden from the Pictures and the Casanovas, Davey Lane, um, and a couple other guys. Um, so basically a tribute to the Beatles. And my God, that was it was awesome. Yeah. Couldn't believe we, it. Like, I haven't seen this before. Oh, that was we, incredible. Yeah, we put a bit of work into that. It was... Um, yeah. Ross from Snout was on bass as well. Yep. One of my all-time music heroes, Ross McLennan. Um, and Timothy, Timothy Nelson. Timothy Nelson from WA came over and played the Billy Preston keyboard lines, and he was amazing. Good, um, on, the, good on the harmony vocals. Oh, my God. That was one of the best days I've ever had as a musician. Yeah. It was just – it was incredible. Um, Trevor, who put the show together – emailed us quite a few months ahead and saying, guys, I want to do this filming thing for the Beatles rooftop anniversary, um, you know, to mark that milestone or whatever it is. Um, and we all sort of thought, yeah, this sounds like fun. And we knew that it wasn't going to be a, a long set because it was a very short amount of songs. So we rehearsed it up a few, I think the night before. And the day of the filming, it was, we were in a heat wave. Mm. So it was like 36 degrees on the rooftop, no shade. There's a couple of umbrellas, I think, up there. Um, and everything was live. We didn't repair anything. Like um, we might have flown in maybe a line of, from another version, but we didn't tune anything. There was nothing overdubbed. It was – it was. we did a couple of takes of, of things like, like, like the, what the Beatles did, but yeah. it was – it was a beautiful day. Then it's – at the end of the day um, – it poured rain. I, I went and had some food on my own at, at an Indian restaurant, which has since shut down. I sat there having this curry with my guitar case, just <laughs> contemplating playing Beatles music all day in the blazing sun with my friends, <laughs> being filmed. Being a ginger in the sun. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, 50 plus was common at that day. Um, yeah, it was just it was magical. It was incredible. I'm, I'm glad you look on it favourably. I'm sure there's probably mm. a few haters out there online who probably gave it a thumbs down. But from our perspective, I think it was great. We did it in the right spirit. You know, we, yeah. we're not a tribute band. We 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 love that music so much that hopefully we injected the love into the the, the, the playing of it. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And it sounded great. It looked great. And yeah, you could tell you guys did it with the best intentions. And I look forward to casting it. To my big screen TV, probably tonight actually, because I haven't shown to Honey yet. What time should I come over? <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, it was. It, it sounded great. It was. I'm like, why haven't I seen this before? And I think there was one thumbs down. Okay, well that's fair it's enough. Not, there's always got to be one. You, you've got to have a thumbs down. You yep. just keep it all nice balance. Yeah. <laughs> nice balance. <laughs> Look, it's it it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. When it comes to tribute stuff like that, like yeah, I only say yes to these things because I love. Usually love the artist that's being uh, celebrated, mm-hmm. and you know, if someone's going to pay me to go and play Zeppelin songs. Of course, I'm going to do it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the danger is that you have to be prepared enough to do them properly. Yeah, you're the you're the perfect one to do it. <laughs> oh so. mate, well, there. Unfortunately, I have to correct you there. Perfect. Oh, <laughs> oh uh, ideal, most suitable. No, uh, uh-huh. 
qualified. Most reckless. Oh, okay. <laughs> wow. I'm the least qualified to do it. Zeppelin. I'm actually, that's a can of worms. When you do Zeppelin nice, it's like, oh, my God, I thought I knew this song. Mm. It's only when you start learning those songs you think, oh, my God, I don't know how to play this song it's properly. magic, isn't it? Like, yeah. We were trying to play the Rain song just before. Um, I, think, I think between us we've got it covered, mate. Yeah. <laughs> don't you think? In some form. Yeah, I'm a bit rusty. <laughs> It's yeah, it's such an astonishing, astonishing piece of music. But um, those Beatles songs, the rooftop sessions, like that, though, it's so primal. Like I, I played rhythm because I was playing all the John parts. I played lead on get back, obviously, because John played lead on get back. Mm-hmm. But everything is so, so bulletproof, you know. Like it's, and it, yeah, I, I just that music to me is like a life source, you know. Mm. Um, speaking of bullets, I read that uh, Lemmy from Motorhead, his ashes were put into bullet casings and sent to his closest friends. Wow, that's so, cool. Uh, one of them being Ricky Rackman from, you know, Head- Headbangers Ball back yeah. in the day. Uh, Ricky said that Lemmy said before his death, he asked for his ashes to be put in some bullets and handed out to his closest friends. Um, so Ricky posted, I think it was yesterday or the day before, I received a bullet and was literally brought to tears. Thank you, Motorhead. It had, and it's got Lemmy engraved on the bullet. Wow. So I just thought that was an interesting thing to, to bring up with you on today's chat. That's amazing. <laughs> it's one way to um, scatter your ashes, I guess. Yeah. Wow. So, How did we get onto bullets? Um, can't remember. <laughs> you said bullet there or casings or something. Yeah. Um, that's pretty... Um, that's a pretty epic send-off, mm. isn't it? Would expect nothing less from someone like Lemmy. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I've got one final question for you. All Ash. right, mate. Did rock and roll, in fact, save your life? It did. It did? And it does every day. Mm-hmm. Every day it does. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously it changes week by week what it, what it means to you. But, look, for example, in... I talked about this on episode one <laughs> of the Ashnaley Yak Fest. Um, <laughs> Hendrix, okay, like during the enforced layoff, <laughs> um, I went on a band of gypsies bender and I listened to that sometimes at night whenever mm-hmm. I'd gone to bed. I had my headphones, I had an extension cable I bought from Manny's. Just listening to band of gypsies, you know, like, you know, every every aspect of that. And Hendrix, Hendrix records that I've had since I was a teenager, digging out records that I never gave full attention to when I was a kid, like listening to um, Electric Ladyland, listening to it with freedom because I, I didn't have to be anywhere. I didn't have a gig to get to. Yeah. I didn't have a song to write. I didn't have any agenda. I, my only motive was to listen to music and listening to that. And, that you know, that saves your life. Every time you press play, you know, or every time you put the needle on um, 1983, you know, that track off Electric Lady Lane, it's like, if anyone's curious about Hendrix, that, that's a great entry point. It's not an easy song as an entry point, but it's, it's kind of probably like his rain song for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it does short answer. Rock and roll saves my life every day. Mm-hmm. You know, it's. I mean, it's part of as it is for yourself. It's a life source. It's. 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 
it's maybe a bit geeky or embarrassing to say, but it, it is what shapes you as a human being, you know? Like, you know, we all, we all deal with life, at, you know, every aspect of our life, paying bills, you know, car rego, all that bullshit, making sure your petrol tank doesn't run low, making sure the rent's paid or the mortgage is paid, whatever. Mm. Um, but in that, in that realm of, of your life that you need, con- you know, needs to be um, f- fulfilled, it's, it's music. For me, it's rock and roll. It's, 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 it almost defies, it defies categorization, mm. you know? So at the risk of sounding too philosophical, it, it saves my life every second. And it's always there for you. It is, man. Mm-hmm. It is. And with you, yeah. Well, thank you very much, much, Ash Naylor. Thank Ashley you, Naylor. Thank you for having me. Craig. Really, it's been lovely to chat to you. I really appreciate your time. I know we uh, we had some technical difficulties. As uh, well, as we, we had do, a, we but, had a pretty uh, big technical difficulty in twenty twenty, didn't we? Yeah, we did. We did. <laughs> Hopefully, we're past that. And, yeah. Uh, I, want, I want to really thank you for your time and um, for your inspiration that you send out to the world oh mate well likewise thank you for inviting me to talk with you about music because um it's something you and i share a deep passion for and um you know i hope and assume that it's the same for the people that listen to you to your show so thanks for having me mate absolutely i think we could uh we could do this all day and we kind of have in a way actually i think part th- <laughs> i can feel part three coming on yeah <laughs> well uh best of luck with the church shows thank you and i'll put a bunch of links in the show notes everything relating to you thank you and um best of luck for the even new album release and all the shows and everything for 2021 i wish you all the best thanks mate likewise and i hope you're uh, writing songs um you know, at, a, at an alarming rate that'll yes. surprise yourself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Ash. Thanks, mate. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and uh, we'll catch you again soon for another episode of Fox on the Wire. Mm-hmm.